as the main topic I get out of that is uh, selfless service. Uh, I am, I'm here because a lot of other people did service before I got here. A lot to me now. I might not have known it when I got here. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll get to service a little later, but none of it really <clears throat> means much. I, I don't think, unless you kind of know where I came came from. So I'll, I'll cover where I came from as quickly as I can. It was a long, sordid story, uh, and I can scrunch it up into about five minutes. Where there were a lot of secrets. I was the youngest, and uh, the secrets were between my older siblings and my parents. And a lot of there were a lot of things just not talked about. But I think uh, children are extraordinarily sensitive. I think I was probably more sensitive than I realized at the time. But subconsciously, I got that. There was stuff going on that I didn't know about. It had to do with shame. It had to do with sexuality. It had to do with uh, things that we're not allowed to talk about. So I grew up in an atmosphere where we didn't really talk about stuff much. I became good at keeping secrets myself. Picked up in my teens and used for 20 odd years, 25 years. And it was uh, fun at first. This was a while ago. I'm an old guy. Eh? This was during this was during the 60s, and uh, it was easy to uh, pick up in the 60s. It was everywhere, and it was if if, if <coughs> I don't know. I was just attracted to the to the. <coughs> Jimi Hendrix and the Cream, they were my people, and I was part of that, <coughs> taking lots of uh, experimental drugs, and it was, uh, it was kind of a spiritual journey at first, I mean, that's what, it, that's what I thought it was, um, it just kind of veered off into left field at a certain point. At a certain point, it stopped being a spiritual journey, and uh, Part of my identity. I, I I started waking up in the morning, and the first thing I thought of was how am I going to get high today? And I didn't think that was abnormal. <coughs> it was just the way I was living. It was just who I was. Uh, I guess I can exemplify it pretty well by uh, kind of giving a brief biography of my daughter. Actually, uh, when the, the night my daughter was born, I was junk sick. And uh, I uh, borrowed without permission some money and went out and got myself not junk sick. The sad part of that is that it, it, it poisoned forever probably the most amazing event that had ever happened in my life. Now when I think of the night this miracle happened when my daughter was born, my addiction was right there. And it's, it's not something I'm proud of. And over the years, there's, there's some memories of her growing up. Uh, she's four years old, and she's and she's facing her mother down and saying, "He doesn't always lie, mommy." And I was looking down at her, and I was thinking, "Well, I do actually." 
I used behind that too. It was, it was, it was, I, I didn't like myself much. I was doing stuff that uh, I didn't, I didn't approve of. I left her in a taxi when I went to school. <laughs> it, 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 <clears throat> it's stuff, stuff. But it, it's important for me to remember these things because it's where my addiction took me. It was like, I didn't care. That was the power that the drugs had. Uh, and, and, and I sometimes put a hypothetical question to myself. You know, it, it, when I was on a run, if, if I'd had a, a choice between like pushing a button, which knocked off all the people that I love in the world, and getting my next fix, I don't know what I would have decided to do. <clears throat> so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. And I did not know about narcotics anonymous. This was uh, before it was really a, a widespreadly available program. This was in Montreal, and uh, I guess I went to a couple of treatment centers, because, not because I wanted to, but because I wanted to fool some people into thinking I wanted to. Until finally I got um, uh, arrested on, on Christmas Eve. And uh, <laughs> I'd been collecting, uh, in those days, I don't know what happens now, I've been arrested quite a lot. Um, in those days, you get usually when I got arrested, because it happened a lot, um, they'd give you this thing and, and you'd have to show up in court like three or four months later and then they'd send you on your way after you'd been through the whole handcuff thing. This was, you know, not shoplifting. By this particular time, Christmas Eve, they decided that they wanted to uh, know that uh, somebody else in the world knew me and knew about this thing that was happening to me. So they, they, they got a, they got me to divulge. I was living in, a, in my parents' basement at the time. My, my wife had kicked me out. I was living in my parents' basement. So uh, they were the only people, but I knew the phone number besides my dealer. And they phoned them on Christmas Eve and told them that they'd been arrested. And uh, <laughs> did they know me? And they said, yes. And then they let me go. And I came home. And by the time I got there, I had my story straight. I'd lost my wallet. Somebody, you know, when, 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 when they... When I was confronted about the fact that the police had called, I guess I'd lost my wallet and somebody else had it and had been arrested, and that's why it didn't work. <laughs> I guess they'd gotten to know me by then. Uh, so it's Christmas Eve, and, and this is a family meeting time because my sister's in from Colorado, my brother's in town, everybody's in town, and I am the topic of conversation. And the choice was uh, offered to me at that point that uh, I could uh, volunteer to go into a long, underlying, long-term treatment program, or uh, they never wanted to see me again. And uh, in my mind, that wasn't really what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the, this you know, thick deck of summonses that I had hidden in the drawer and how it, it might look better 
when I finally had to face the music, if I had been to treatment and it had, could tell somebody that I was trying to deal with this problem, which I didn't really regard as a problem, it was <sighs> denial. So I picked uh, option A. It's hard, I guess, eh, for parents to tell their kids that they never want to see them again. I didn't realize until later how hard that choice was. My mom told me later that it was the first time she'd ever seen my dad cry later that way. And I was kind of oblivious to that part of things at that time. Uh, so I came to, uh, from Montreal to here and uh, arrived here with a, gar a garbage bag full of clothes and stuff and went to treatment and, and they made me go to Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And I wasn't very interested in Narcotics Anonymous because just before I left Montreal, I called my dealer and told her to save, save me some. I'll be back. So I wasn't like your full of willingness and I want to start a new life. I was going back in treatment want to, but I guess I have to, and I didn't like any of you guys, you were all, uh, what was, uh, you know, losers that couldn't handle their dope, you know, not like me, <laughs> I, I can handle my dope, I, haven't I demonstrated that? <clears throat> I was carrying a lot of uh, self-loathing, to say the least. And uh, as I said, I didn't like anybody here. But, but over time, uh, it was a six-month program, and they, they made me stay nine. And over that time, something happened, and it, and it wasn't so much like, I think treatment is a, is, a, is a real good place for somebody like me, because it gave me a safe place to uh, just be alive. I don't remember much that happened there, but the main thing that they did for me was they introduced me to you guys. And so even though I didn't like you at first, I learned to love you later. I went to um, one of our uh, Narcotics Anonymous activities here. There was a dance. There was three or four months clean. And this is this person, um, not like today, but I, I was completely enveloped in shame. I hated myself, and I didn't think anybody else thought much more of me than I did. So I slunk around, I went to these things, I went to these meetings, I didn't talk much, I didn't want to be here. But I went to this activity because, oh hell, what else, what else is there to do? And there's some pretty girls there. Anyway, one of these pretty girls was standing on a ladder and she was hanging up the balloons. And I always tell this story because it's, it's, it's kind of iconic in my, in my recovery story. She handed me these balloons and asked me to help put them up. And at that moment, it was, uh, in my mind, it was like, do you know who I am? Like, you're asking me? Like, you're including me? You want me to be a part of this? You're asking me to be a part of this? I don't deserve to be alive, much less participate in this event. 
and to help you put up colored balloons around the place. You're getting me confused with somebody else. But uh, that, uh, that being included. Maybe you want to stay. I hung up some balloons. I felt like I belonged there. I thought, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I'm hang up balloons, I guess. And I did. And I don't know if I became a member of Narcotics Anonymous right there at that moment, but I sort of did. Something clicked inside. Some Something like hope. Something like I don't have to carry this. Like, apparently, other people are willing to let me be around and participate in these events, so fine. <clears throat> uh, about seven months later, I, uh, I so I became a member. I didn't. I wasn't a member when I got here, obviously. And, and it says in our literature that the membership is not automatic. It certainly wasn't for me. It was a process. Once I uh, realized that I had somehow become a member of Narcotics Anonymous, uh, everything that happened here started to matter a lot more. I started going to business meetings, I started to pay attention, because I certainly had a, as a lot of us do, I was uh, very suspicious of authority. And I thought I associated Narcotics Anonymous with them, and uh, you were going to manipulate me into being Lord knows what. I was going to be brainwashed into being something that I didn't want to be. So I, I wanted to know where the money was going. And I wanted to know who was deciding things. I wouldn't trust anybody. Uh, so I was going, <laughs> you know, that's how I got involved in business meetings. But ultimately, I, mean, as, as I became a, a, a GSR when I was nine months clean, and I think okay, I got clean in '88, and I've had some kind of active service position since then, and uh, it's just part of my life. It's, and people sometimes think I overdo it. I don't overdo it. I, I do one at a time, please. You know, I'm not, I'm not involved in absolutely everything that happens. But something. I was involved in something. And I, and I sometimes say to myself, oh, you know, I'll, I'll stop working for Narcotics Anonymous when Narcotics Anonymous stops working for me. So far, so good. So you're stuck with me. Unfortunately, because as long as the program keeps working for me, I'm going to keep participating and in, in keeping the doors open. My, my deepest belief is that service is, is an act of love. It is an act of love for people we haven't met yet. It is an act of love handing some balloons to somebody who doesn't think they deserve to live and to make them feel like they belong somewhere. And all of our service, no matter what it is, if we're putting on a convention, if we're printing a meeting list, that's the motivation which uh, 
which our literature says is, is, is that's what it's about. It's a concept which was completely foreign to me in 1988. I was uh, doing it to save my life. I was getting involved because people told me to. Because if you get involved, stay involved, you'll meet people, other people who are involved and who are probably working some kind of program. And I've certainly been at lots of meetings which didn't feel like there was a lot of that that love was was the was what it was actually about. I've been at a lot of meetings where somebody had to stand up and say, "How does this help the newcomer?" and bring it back to earth, because ultimately that's what all our efforts are supposed to be about. <clears throat> I've had the uh, honor. My understanding of the service structure is sort of like the, the inverted pyramid. Most people have heard of this one. It's it's and and, and the in the hierarchy, so to speak. We, we don't have any presidents, but we have. It's, so at the the more deeply involved you get, you can be involved at the at the group level, which is the highest form of service. At the group. In the area, which is slightly further down, and then at the very bottom, you, it's, it's not that you have, you're more important than anybody else, it's just that you have that many more bosses. The bosses we have are at the top of the pyramid. Those are the members in the group. And gradually you get further and further away from them, but you're more responsible, you're responsible to more people. And, and it's easy at, in, uh, on those. Uh, I've been at, I've been at the areas. Uh, I've been at region. I've been at the Canadian Assembly, and I've attended the World Service Conference. And it, I've always tried to remind myself that it's it's because most of us have some ego somewhere, and it, it's really important for me to try to remember. I'm getting singles. singles. Uh, I'm not more important because I'm at the World Service Conference. I have that much more responsibility. Boy, uh, for addicts who have ego problems, sometimes that's difficult. It is. It's been an amazing journey. And I, I don't talk about the you know these different levels of service because I think it, it makes me any. Um, it, they've all given me huge gifts. They've all added to my uh, appreciation of my talents. I actually realize how spoiled I am having grown up in Ottawa. In Ottawa, we have meetings every day, two or three, four meetings every single day. And uh, it hasn't always been like that. In 1988, it wasn't like that, but it's become, become easy to find Narcotics Anonymous. It's become easy here to, to stay involved in Narcotics Anonymous. There are places where we're trying to carry the message where um, it's illegal to have meetings. There's places around the world where we're trying to carry the message now, so people who we don't know yet um, 
and, and find the gift of recovery. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful privilege to be a part of that in a small way. Sometimes. That was a while ago. I haven't done service at that level in about 10 years. I'm, I'm a GSR in my home group now. That's my elected position today. And it keeps me involved. I hope I never lose the, uh, the desire to be a service in Paris Anonymous. It does it, it again, added the steps 10, 11, and 12 here. <laughs> so I run out of talking about service because I didn't go on only so long about it. You know, I just run completely out of steam talking about <laughs> service 10, 11, 12. I guess it's important for me, and this is sort of what I was talking about, about reminding ourselves that it, it's not about me, it's about people who aren't here yet. That's why I'm doing the work on the uh, and I did put basic text somewhere. Hold me a second. I had to go home. I got an NA convention. I had to go home to find a basic text. <laughs> we read this at every area meeting in Ottawa. And it's my one of my favorite readings in the basic text. It's, it's the first paragraph of Tradition 2, first two paragraphs. In Narcotics Anonymous, we are concerned with protecting ourselves from ourselves. Our second tradition is an example of this. By nature, we are strong-willed, self-centered people who are thrust together in NA. We are mismanagers, and not one of us is capable of consistently making good decisions. In Narcotics Anonymous, we rely on a loving God as he expresses himself in our group conscience rather than on personal opinion or ego. I just love that, saving ourselves from ourselves. That's what's for me. Um, I often think that there's, there's really two aspects to service. I, I didn't want to forget this. I think the, the work we do is really important. Starting meetings in countries where it hasn't started yet. But almost of equal importance is what happens to us as recovering people as we're doing the work. Before I got here, um, we had business meetings in cars deciding who was, you know, who was going to drive the getaway car. Right? That was that was our business meetings. And I got here and I was introduced to Robert's rules and how to make decisions without being disagreeable. And I didn't know about budgets and I didn't know about group conscience. I didn't know about how to be accountable. I, all of these skills I have learned through doing service in Narcotics Anonymous. And all of us who get involved learn to some degree this stuff. Some of us come with those skills already. I certainly did not. Um, and, and I can go to meetings elsewhere, not in Narcotics Anonymous, and I don't feel out of place because I've, I've been here. I've learned how to speak respectfully. I've learned how to listen to other people. I've, I've, it has a gift from you guys, utterly and completely. So yeah, there's the work we do, but I think it's kind of like a safe lab where we can learn skills which allow us to participate in society. And that's, I mean, to, to me, it's, it's almost an equal balance. Narcotics Anonymous offers these opportunities. 
and it said that two uh, percent of us do all the service. That's too bad. That's too bad. Because uh, some of us end up taking on too much. Some of us uh, run away with resentments because we're doing all the work and nobody else is doing it. There's, there's a lot of stuff goes on like that. Um, if everybody pulled their weight a little bit, then there'd be less for everybody, of course. Um, I'm about done. Uh, two years ago, my, my daughter uh, visited uh, Montreal, and uh, well, she came here first, and we, we went to Montreal together. And I went to visit her and her sister and, and her mom, and it was in this, uh, it was a really nice, like I wasn't, I'm not part of that family anymore, just my daughter. But I was visiting her and her sisters and stuff, and, and I was kind of filled with a, yeah, I wasn't jealous. It was just, it was, it was just, I was really happy for her to have this really strong family around her. And I, and I mentioned it to her. I said, "You've got a really great team here, you know, about her sisters and her mom and how they were supporting her, and she just had a baby on the granddad now." And and she uh, poked me in the chest and said, Dad, I got a really good team right here. And um, thank you guys for that. I wasn't a good team 20 years ago. 20 years ago. But uh, you've allowed me to uh, grow into someone that my daughter can respect. <laughs> Can't say that. I'm grateful for the balloons. I'm grateful for the steps. And uh, I'm about to be grateful for Arnie's message. Thank you very much. Our second speaker is Arnie from Toronto. Please help me welcome Arnie. Welcome to Ross. You took the topic away. <laughs> Welcome to this workshop on relationships. No, uh, <laughs> being of service. Good. Good. I'm always talking about the wrong thing. I want to thank the uh, thank the academy, all the little people that made this possible. Now I want to thank the uh, thank the committee for uh, allowing me to be of service and to come here and share. Um, Thank my wife for letting me come here, <clears throat> letting me run away from home. I want to thank Ross uh, for just being the human being that he is. Ross is very humble. Ross was chair of the Canadian Assembly for a long time, a long time, and uh, we served together there. And it was, uh, you know, it was just one of those great learning experiences uh, for me that I will, I will come back to. Um, you know, this is a this is a service workshop. Clearly, 
And whenever you're at a convention and they have a service workshop, generally you could call any other workshops that are going on anything other than service because that's where people are going to go. Very rarely people will come and show up. for If it's got the word service in it, generally people don't show up. So I, I really appreciate uh, the fact that there's anybody at all in the room. That's, that's fantastic. That's a, good, that's a good sign. But it also shows the, uh, the, the very small amount of people that actually do service, that are interested in service, that even want to know about service. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people put their fingers in their ears and just say, well, somebody else will do that. And people sitting in this room know that somebody else will not necessarily do that. But somebody has to get their ass up out of the chair and do it. And you're the people that do it. Um, I like to thank you for setting it up for us. I'll tell my story. Tell a service story. Um, uh, well, let's see. <clears throat> you know what? I was 13. I got loaded. I passed out. I woke up. I was 38. And uh, <laughs> that's basically it, you know? I didn't want to come to Narcotics Anonymous. I didn't think this was a good idea. This was just the most, this was the most absurd thing that anyone could ever suggest to me. Uh, I had been exposed to Narcotics Anonymous before. I'd seen you guys in the treatment centers and the detoxes that I had been to, and I didn't want any part of it. You with your group hugs and your keep coming back and your little group readings. And uh, the last treatment center I went to, I lasted five days. Uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, it was it, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I learned so much. Um, I learned, uh, you know, back then different things appealed to me. They put me in a room, uh, and they told me that uh, they asked me if I was hungry. Now I'd been up for seven days, and I hadn't eaten, I hadn't slept, I hadn't done anything in seven. Well, I'd done a lot of stuff in seven days, but it certainly didn't have anything to do with food. So uh, I said, uh, "Yes, I'm, I'm hungry." said, well, right across the hallway, and I could see this glass wall was an area where all, all of you were sitting in the cafeteria with your food. And uh, I said, no, I'm not hungry. Uh, I'm not going there. Because I didn't want, I was looking at all the differences, none of the similarities. I wanted to stay as far away from there as possible. So they brought food to the room in this particular treatment center. Um, and I had a couple of other gentlemen in the room. <clears throat> fascinating, fascinating gentleman. There was a, a, a huge fellow, his name was Lamar. Uh, he was 20 feet tall, he was very big. Uh, he was a crackhead, he was hyperactive. He was, he was everything and everybody was scared of him because uh, he threatened everybody. Him and I just got along like this. And there was another older fellow there who was like old, very old and uh, he called me Steve till the day we left, and I don't know why. Uh, but he would often, you know, in the treatment center, this is this is the way it worked. At night, you know, the lights would go down, we'd go out, we'd steal food. They'd say, you gotta come to the meetings during the day, and we'd go, yeah, yeah, right. Man. We'd be smoking by the window. We never left the room. Uh, the elderly guy would go out at night and steal furniture from the hotel, and when I woke up, the room would be redecorated. So we'd, <laughs> we'd, have, an, uh, we'd have an armoire from a doctor's office on the seventh floor, and we'd have all this. And that's kind of the way it went in treatment uh, for a long time. Um, well, well, a long time for me, which was four days. And then I realized that, then uh, I realized it was clear, uh, you know, it dawned on me on the fifth day that I haven't used in five days. I have not used in five days. 
And they said I was an addict. <laughs> I haven't used it in five days. Clearly, uh, this thing works. And so uh, I decided that uh, it was time for me to leave. I booked a, a meeting with the head of the facility, and I said, uh, you know, I think I should, I should be able to leave. I thought all the doors were locked, and she said, the doors aren't locked here. And that was just a revelation to me. And then I couldn't figure out, well, why are we here? <laughs> why isn't everybody just running away? And uh, she said, the doors aren't locked. You can leave whenever, whenever you need to. Thank you. Uh, I haven't finished yet. The doors uh, aren't locked, and uh, you know I, I had to tell her that I, you know, I have to, I have to, I had to let her know something that was, I thought well, I was the only person who knew, which was there are a lot of drug addicts in here. She said, "Really?" I said, "Yes, a lot of drug addicts. Some of them are crazy. I don't belong here. I think I should go." Uh, so after five days, five days, I left, and of course I was operating on Arnie's Anonymous, great program, one step, willingness doesn't work, uh, and I got high over and over and over again until eventually I found the program. Um, and I found the program not because I wanted to, it was because of the state of California felt that it was important uh, that I go to meetings. I had to have a piece of paper signed. Uh, if you have a problem with court cards, don't, uh, because it saved my life. I went to a meeting when I didn't want to go to a meeting, when I, when I told my lawyer, uh, she said, you know, the, the choice is you go back to jail or you go to a meeting. I would have much preferred to go to jail at that point, but I went to the meeting, and I went to the meeting, and I didn't expect what I was going to see. I didn't expect what I was going to hear. I didn't expect what I was going to feel at the meeting, and I didn't want to see, and I didn't want to hear, and I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to be a part of that. I didn't want to be a part of you. I didn't want anything you had. I didn't want to grow up like you. I didn't want to get old like you. I didn't want to look like you. I didn't want to smell like you. I didn't want to do anything that you did. But uh, I went into that meeting, and I, I. Uh, I heard the stuff I didn't want to hear, and I saw what I didn't want to see, and um, I saw that there were people who were just like me. Uh, one guy looked like he crawled out from under a rock, but he was clean, and uh, it changed my life. That meeting changed my life because I saw the truth, and the truth is that you don't have to use anymore. That's the truth, and the funny thing about the truth is that when you see the truth, you can't make it go away. You can't unsee the truth. Ah, I didn't see that. That never happened. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. I went back to the crack house I was living in and I told them, you should see where I've been. And I stayed clean for about a half an hour. But I had to go back again. I had to go back again. I had to go back again. And I couldn't get that out of my head. I knew that, uh, I knew that uh, there was a solution. Um, so it took me a while, uh, even though I was exposed to meetings, to finally make that uh, break. I came back up to Canada, and uh, and then I went to treatment. Not to say the treatment is everything, and treatment's what you need to do. But I I went to treatment because uh, I wanted to go to treatment. What time are we going to? Oh, awesome! Isn't that great? We talked about service for another two days. Um, so uh, I went to treatment because I wanted to go to treatment. I really wanted to go. I really wanted recovery. I got into a meeting. I got a home group. I I started hearing people talk a different language uh, at at the meetings, and I, I asked them where they got that. They said, I've got a sponsor. What's a sponsor? We talked about that. I, I asked somebody to be my sponsor. They said no, and uh, I didn't exactly know what to do with that, but someone said, you know, if your dealer said no, you wouldn't stop doing drugs, and they were right, so I, I asked somebody else. Um, 
And my first exposure once I got back to Canada and we really started going to meetings, I had a home group. It was the Nooner in Vancouver. It was the Nooner. And someone told me when I got there, if you can stay clean in the Nooner, you can stay clean anywhere. Nooners are generally an interesting group of people. Nooners are generally people who are not employed. And uh, you really get a cross-section of society. There is every opportunity to look for the differences in a nooner. If you really want to go somewhere where it may be difficult to see the similarities, go to the nooner. But you know, I knew at this point I crossed that line where uh, I didn't have any other choices. I tried lots of other things before I got here. I had tried uh, counselors. I had who who suggested that I stop using drugs. Ridiculous. I had tried. Uh, I tried religion. I tried. You know, I, I shared with some people in the room before. I've tried putting my hands on the television at two in the morning when the evangelist was there and crying, and he's crying, I'm crying, and it didn't work. Uh, so I tried everything, and uh, here's where I ended up. This was the last stop before the bus went over the cliff. <clears throat> and I got a home group. I got a home group. The Nooner. The Nooner. New attitudes in Vancouver. Noon, every day. Uh, I was about two blocks from where I was living in someone's basement with, uh, who was kind enough to let me live in their basement, I should say. Light bulb hanging from the ceiling, but it was, you know what? It was a palace. It was the best. And uh, I, I think. In some ways, I'm jealous of newcomers because it's just the best time. Because there's so much stuff coming in, there's so much new stuff to learn. There's so much. Somebody says, "Keep coming back." You go, "Wow, where'd you get that?" <laughs> Keep coming back. Whoa. <laughs> I know. So um, that's what it was like for me. And I got messages from everywhere. You know, I was looking at nature. I was watching TV, and everything was talking to me and telling me what direction I should go in. Um, but I kept going to the nooner, it's day after day after day after day. And um, I, I, that's where I first saw service. That's where I first saw people involved in service. We had a fellow there who was a secretary. And uh, normally, uh, and we had a chairperson. I knew that, that's all I knew, is that we had those two people. And the chair would generally run the meeting, the secretary would kind of take over the middle. Well, this, and, and the secretary would hand out the readings and everybody would read them. Not the secretary. The secretary read every meeting. That was when he was secretary. He read all the, and he was a terrible reader. But uh, he would read all the readings, and uh, so I got my first resentment towards service. Um, but uh, you know, at one point the secretary didn't show up. At one point the secretary didn't come to the meeting, and they said, "Arnie, you're going to be the secretary." And they gave me the, the sheets for the secretary, and I got to, I got to be the secretary. That was really something. And uh, I said, you know, we have the business meeting once a month, and you should come. You should show up. And I got to go to the business meeting. And it was, like Ross was saying, it was very exciting because I got to see behind the curtain what's going on with Narcotics Anonymous. And I was voted in as a secretary for my home group. And I had a title, and I had a position. And new people would arrive at the meeting and say, what's your name? I'm glad you're here. This is Great. I'm the secretary, by the way. <laughs> you may have heard of me. I'm a pretty big deal around the nooner. So, uh, you know, but, but it gave me a sense of, um, and we were talking about it in the car on the way up. And thank you, Joe, for getting us here safely and swiftly and 
heavy on the swiftly type thing. <laughs> it's great. Uh, but we were talking about that on the way up in the car, that um, service is about a sense of purpose. It's about a sense of belonging. Uh, the program became my program. The home group became my home group. Welcome to, it's not the program, welcome to our program. Uh, so anyways, I got to go to the business meeting and we were, uh, you know, we were talking about, once again, like Ross was saying, the, the money, like we get to decide on what we're gonna do. I had a voice, I got to vote. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I look back on it now, it was probably the most dysfunctional thing I've ever seen. But to me then, this was like I was in the House of Commons. It was, I was in the United Nations. This was a big deal. Well, we've got $10 from the seventh tradition. What should we do with it? Wow! <laughs> How are we going to allocate these funds? And, uh, you know, it was very... It was very, very, those were exciting times. And, and that's where I got to, I got introduced to a GSR. You know, it was a GSR and it was a treasure. I didn't even know these people existed. They were like these secret service positions that never got to talk uh, at the meeting, but yet they handled the money and they represented us at area. And and it was, uh, it was fascinating for me. And I probably could have stayed and done that position for a long time. I probably could have lived out my life as secretary of the Nooner in Vancouver. But fate pushes us in all sorts of, all sorts of mundane different uh, directions. And uh, as, as fate would have it, I picked a, a sponsor when I was in treatment. Uh, clearly the wrong sponsor to pick. Uh, I picked him because he had a mohawk and uh, because he was really funny. And uh, I just thought he was a great guy. So uh, I, uh, I answered the phone one day, and that's another key in service, don't answer the phone. If you don't want to do something, don't answer the phone. It's always answer the phone, what? But you never say no. My sponsor always told me when NA asks, you don't say no. And that's where the good stuff happens. Even when you want to say no, even when you think it's the most mundane, ridiculous thing in the world, don't say no. So uh, I got a call from my sponsor saying, uh, what are you doing uh, on Wednesday night? I made the mistake of saying nothing. Uh, he said, great, you're coming in with me, we're gonna do some H&I. Never heard of H&I before. I said, great, that's super. And I hung up the phone, what the hell is H&I? But uh, I found out, we met him, and uh, we went into, uh, actually it was some time later. There was, some, there was a little bit of a gap between the time that we went into the treatment center. It turned out to be the treatment center that I went through. Uh, it turned out that you know, I had six months by then. I was writing in my journal that uh, I don't know about this recovery thing. I remember writing that I, I really don't know where I'm at. I don't know what's going on. I don't think I've learned anything. I don't think anything has changed. Uh, I think I wouldn't recognize recovery if it got into an elevator with me. Uh, and yet, you know, here I am, and just the same. I, I want something to change. I want it to happen right now. I want it to be an event. I don't want it to be a process. He said, come on, we're going to do some h &I. We go back into the treatment center that I had been in six months beforehand. And we walked in there, and uh, I'm looking at the people who had sat in, the, who sat in the same chairs that I was sitting in, and were they ever a mess? They were a mess. I realized I was a mess. I've changed. Like, I remember coming out of there thinking, amongst other things, wow, I, you know, I have changed. This program has changed me. Whether I like it or not, 
I've been changed. And I didn't even come here to change. I didn't come here. I came here to change what I did. I realized to stay here, I have to change who I am. And I didn't know that then. So uh, I went and did H&I, loved it, loved H&I. Really felt like we were, we were getting in the Blackhawks, going behind enemy lines, dropping down, you know, carrying the message, getting back in the helicopters, getting back to home base, <laughs> and then talking about how great we were. That was when you said, that oh, was great. Did you see that guy in the corner? Oh, he loved it. He loved it. He was crying when you were talking about that part. <laughs> so it was a great experience. So for anybody who hasn't done H&I here, H&I is hospitals and institutions. It's carrying the message into treatment centers, detox, prisons, jails, usually where people can't get out to meetings. And I've had the opportunity over the years to do a lot of H&I. I love doing H&I. H&I is a solution for everything. If there's something going wrong in your life, do some H&I. <clears throat> you back over the dog in your car, do some H&I. You know, your, your spouse leaves you, do some H&I. You get fired from your job, do some H&I. It's always a way of getting that gratitude back and that appreciation for what's truly important and to see people who don't have what we have and to be able to give your life, once again, with service, a sense of purpose, uh, a meaning to do something for someone else that we don't expect anything back from. So I got into this H&I so bad I mean, it's not surprising I got addicted to H&I, big surprise. So uh, I became a panel leader because, hey, it's the only service position in NA that has the word leader. So I wanted that one, panel leader, I'm the panel leader. I used to be the secretary, now the panel leader. <laughs> so I go off to, be, you know, my job was to you know, go to meetings and you listen to people sharing and Go up and you know that was a pretty good message. You uh, ever thought of doing H and I? Might want to come in with me. Uh, I, I did that to someone after a meeting. <clears throat> he was a really really tall guy, but he spoke really well. And uh, here I had like nine months later, something like that. And I went up to him and said, "You know, you've got a pretty good message." It was Walter. <laughs> Walter Ross is laughing because Walter was on the board of trustees for the World Service Office. And here I am with nine months going, yeah, you got a pretty good message there. What's your name again? Walter, good. Listen, um, I'm doing a little thing on uh, Wednesdays. You might want to come down. Uh, I'll invite you. you. Just say you're with me. <laughs> Walter, he was very polite. He said, uh, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Walter is just a, a wonderful, a wonderful, warm guy. He's done so much service for this. He was very kind to me not to slap me around. Uh, so, at any rate, I was a panel leader for a long time. <clears throat> Turns out I was a panel leader, and this is not what you're supposed to do at H&I. I was panel leader at the same facility for 10 years. That's not, not, not what you're supposed to do. There's something called rotation. Uh, but uh, I didn't do that. However, after being panel leader for a while, you know, and understanding uh, what's going on behind the curtains at the group level by seeing the business meeting there and really telling my friends, wow, you should see what goes on, what we do with the money. What? Uh, well, eventually, uh, at, a, at a committee meeting for H&I, the chair didn't show up. And the chair, and the chair did show up, I'm sorry, the chair uh, said he was resigning. And he was resigning right there. He wanted to leave, there was no more chair. So, oh, am I gonna burp on tape or on CD? That would be great. Uh, it was a burp, by the way. So uh, he, uh, 
ended up leaving and they said, uh, you know, we need a chair. We need a person to uh, take over. And it, once again, this is one of the things where everybody is looking around, looking at everybody else. And finally, after that silence, I said, like, oh, I'll be the chair. So great, Artie got voted in his chair. So I was chair of H&I in uh, Vancouver for a while, uh, which allowed me to experience for the first time an area meeting. Never been to an area meeting before. That was very interesting. I mean, going from <laughs> going from the business meeting at my home group to the area meeting. You know, if I thought that was the House of Commons, now I'm looking at wow, these people are gods in here, and uh, it was so organized. And even though people were yelling at each other half the time, it was it was really something to be a part of. And we weren't just dealing with ten dollars; we were dealing with hundreds of dollars. And and we were talking about issues that were all over Vancouver. And uh, it was just, it was so exciting. And there was the camaraderie of service. You know, there is, there are a group of people, you get clean with them, and they'll always be, you know, I've always got the class of 1994 that I got clean with. But then you've got people in, uh, in who you've done service with, like Ross and I, who've done service together. There's that bond of, you know, we were in the war. We were there. We served in that particular battle for uh, however long, and um, it's just something. It, it's just something else. It's, it seems to be another level, uh, and you start seeing these people in service all the time. You see them here. You start going to conventions like this. You see the same faces over and over again. So I served as chair uh, for a while for uh, for Vancouver H and I, and then. Uh, as a result of that, I had to represent Vancouver H&I at something called the Region. Uh, I'd never been to a Region before. It was very exciting. Um, it was uh, in another, we had to drive there. It was like in another city. So we actually got the first kind of NA road trip. And uh, then it was like a whole other level. Like we were on this galactic level of service that I, I couldn't even imagine. And people were polite and it really was organized and it was a it was a tight crew uh, it was very interesting and I heard things about what was happening all over British Columbia I heard what was happening all and and sometimes I got the trickle down of news on what was happening in the world what was happening in the whole world I, I was getting another you know it's like when I was at my home group and you serve as a secretary you get to go to the business meeting your vision gets a little farther get to see a little farther away on what's on the horizon, where we've been. Um, you get the area, you get to see a little farther uh, on where, where we're going, how we're going to get there. When you get the region, you get to see even farther out where we're going. It was very, those were very, very exciting times. I went to region, I served on the regional H&I uh, subcommittee for a while, and um, fabulous, it was wonderful, great crew, like-minded people. We were all key about H&I, we loved H&I, we loved carrying the message. We did something, we were doing something that made a difference. Uh, after a while, I, uh, I was the vice chair for regional H&I in British Columbia, and then I became the chair for H&I in British Columbia for whatever the terms were, I think it was two, uh, two years which was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I remember when we were sitting at the regional table, I was at region for 12 years. I remember sitting at the regional table, one of the things that we talked about was, is there life after service? What happens? What happens after this position? Do 
go to the next position because at, at my regional, t at a lot of the regional tables where I went to, a lot of the areas that I went to, it seemed like there were elections and people were just shifting seats. They were just moving around. The treasurer would become a secretary, secretary would become a chair, chair would become this, and, and it was, uh, I think everybody was afraid to let go of service and move on to some different service. So there was that discussion, is there life after service? And one of the reasons why is we had someone, we had some people there called RDs. And I got to find out what an RD is. And an RD, for those of you who don't know, is a regional delegate, an individual that carries the message of the, or is a conduit of information, if you will, and represents the region to the World Service Conference that Ross was talking about. And um, to hear them talk, to hear what they were saying and to hear the, in, the insight that they had and the news they were carrying. I wanted to, I wanted that information. I was hungry for information. I was hungry for participation. I wanted to see this stuff. So after I finished, and, and sorry, the reason why I said life after service, because a lot of these regional delegates uh, were rolling off and they were lost and they didn't do service anymore. And I couldn't understand that. And the, all, some of the alternates, ruled on and he didn't do service anymore. Um, the alternate position came up and I was voted in as RD alternate. I was so excited to go to my first world service conference, to go to the world service conference. This was like going to Oz. I didn't have any idea what to expect, a yellow brick road, a big emerald, you know. I, I didn't, I had no idea what to expect. It was so exciting. And I was just, I was the alternate. I wasn't the RD, so basically my job was to get copies for the RD. I just made sure he was taken care of, everything was good with him. Did he have a pen? Did he have a coffee? Okay, just tell me what to do. And uh, to go to this event, to go to the World Service Conference, to be able to <clears throat> witness the global uh, demographics of Narcotics Anonymous was uh, something that I can't, I can't adequately put into words. But one of the jobs you have as, a, as an alternate, one of the jobs you have as a regional delegate is to be able to, uh, is to be able to carry that information back to your region. But it's not just carrying the information, it's carrying that, it's carrying that feeling, it's carrying that energy that's so hard to tell them, you should see what I saw, you should have been where I was. I made a PowerPoint presentation to say, this is where these people sit. This is where the translators sit. The translation booths. This is the big screen. This is, uh, you know, this guy's from Peru. This fellow's from Germany. And there was like a list they would put up on the, on the uh, projector when people were waiting to talk. And you'd see, uh, you know, Australia, um, Africa, uh, all these countries just listed listed off. That was a continent, sorry, but all these countries. Uh, listed off that you, you often had to pinch yourself and say, wow, how did I get here? How did we get here? How did a fellowship, that, they don't pay us anything to do what we do. How did we get here? By people volunteering their time, by people volunteering all their free time. And the unsung heroes in this are the spouses. The unsung heroes are the ones that let us go. The unsung hero for me today is my wife who's sitting at home uh, willingly giving up her husband for a weekend. You know, they they get the, uh, of the conventions, you get the guy talking in front of the podium. She gets a guy who comes home tired and has got to go to sleep because he's tired from the convention. So, you know, there's a lot of credibility for them I don't, I don't want to leave out. 
Uh, at any rate, I got to go to the conference and witness the conference and become a part of the conference, uh, really begin to see what kind of program we have, what's going on globally, which is a, uh, a picture that very few people get the opportunity to see. Uh, for whatever reason, the communication is, is very difficult from World Services to, uh, to a home group, if you will. And it's always, we've always been trying to improve that. However, that being said, alternate uh, RD for a while, then finally became the regional delegate for British Columbia. They were, they were a great, great time. Well, what happens after, after RD? Well, as a matter of fact, serving, with, uh, serving as an RD, that's where I got the opportunity to meet Ross. Because one of the things the RDs did across Canada is they went to the Canadian Assembly. And the Canadian Assembly is all the regional delegates, all the regions of Canada uh, that get together to uh, try to see how we can carry the message and interact with the government of this, this country and, and try to help the fellowship nationally, if you will. <clears throat> and Ross and I, we were roommates at, at one point. I, I remember we had some conference calls before it, Niagara Falls. Strange things can happen in, in recovery. So uh, serving on the Canadian Assembly, uh, we had some conference calls. We'd have to have meetings over the phone because we only met one time a year physically. So three of those meetings we had conference calls. And we had you know, a delegate from British Columbia, a delegate from Alsace, a delegate from Ontario, a delegate from... So on the line was everybody. Now I didn't know it. There was uh, an alternate uh, Ontario delegate who was on the phone uh, at that point. And this is before we went to Niagara Falls. And, uh, you know, we had the meeting. I don't remember saying anything, but apparently I was a moron because uh, the alternate from Ontario said, uh, hung up the phone and told her friends that uh, that guy, I can't believe how much I hate that guy. That guy from British Columbia is a moron. And when I see him in Niagara Falls, he's going to get it. We've been married for 11 years now. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know, <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. She, uh, Ross was there. Ross was there. She was ready to just spank me in public. And uh, we arrived at Niagara Falls, and I got there at eight thirty when it was supposed to start. And Ontario, the host region, was late, and so I was pissed off. And then uh, she walked into the room, and it's one of those NA things, you know. It was all over at that point. It was it was over. It was done. And we knew it. And, uh, you know, I'm so fortunate. <laughs> I'm so fortunate to have ended up with it. It's tough when you've got somebody else in the program as a spouse, though, because they start throwing it back at you. Um, <laughs> yeah, where's Mr. N.A. now? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> So, so you know, the RD term is, was coming up. The RD term was winding up. It was time to finish being an RD. I, I told myself, I am not going to disappear into the woodwork of Narcotics Anonymous. I'll get another service position. I'll go back to uh, being an H&I chair or an H&I panel leader. It would be wonderful serve out my days in, in the pasture. Uh, however, I was nominated for the World Board. Uh, so um, I said, once again, fine, whatever uh, direction we decide to, to go in, I'm, I'm willing to put my hat in the ring. Uh, we had a, a vote at the Canadian Assembly, 
uh, we had to vote the region and then went to the conference. And what happens for that is the conference, uh, the, con the World Service Conference votes in uh, a board, which is at that time was anywhere up to uh, 18, or actually 24 people, I think. Then. Um, so, and you know, you start thinking that, and at that point in your service career, uh, you want to have your humility and you want to have your, you know, and, and you really play it to, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'm just here to serve. But as you get closer and closer to that election, there is this very awkward, uh, awful thing that happens. Like, Ooh, what if I don't win? What if I don't get in? What if? It was really, really, it was, it was really a, a conflict, if you will. So, um, at any rate, uh, they had to vote. They had to vote, and when I saw my name up on the screen, I just, I, it was hard to believe, uh, and I didn't know what I had signed up for. What I had signed up for is the term for a world board member is six years, uh, and you're eligible for two terms. Uh, so uh, I've been on the world board now for 10 years. Uh, I've been the treasurer for two years, and I'm currently the vice chair of the world board. So uh, just service-wise, uh, getting on the board was, and this is something I want to talk about uh, in service. And Ross and I were alluding to this dark side to begin with. There is this concept, and I don't know where it came from. Maybe it's because I'm Canadian. Maybe it's because we're Canadian and we just apologize for everything. And we think that, you know, everything is going to take care of itself. But there is this undercurrent of distrust uh, that happens. And uh, in particular, there was an undercurrent of distrust with World Services. And I just never felt that way. I never felt that way when I was an RD alternate. I never felt that way when I was an RD. I knew the people. Ross and I were there. We knew the people. We knew the people who were representing us. We knew the people who were elected into those positions. And yet there was this, there was this underlying distrust. There was a lot of turmoil in narcotics anonymous back in the 80s. There was a lot of upheaval. And there are some people who are still around from back then. Who, uh, for whatever reason, believe that some of that is, I, I don't know, um, still happening. And, and actually want to believe that, which is even scarier. <clears throat> so the reason why I bring that up is sometimes you, you have an us and them. <clears throat> One of the things that we try to do on the board is try to get out as much as possible so that you know, people can see there, there is no us and them. And all a board member is is just a glorified uh, GSR. That's all. Uh, and and eventually they're off, and somebody else steps up. But the reason why I bring it up because there's an interesting thing that that happens at the uh, World Service Conference <clears throat> when you're serving with all your uh, fellow RDs. We've got stuff we want to talk about. We've got stuff we're getting together. We're writing motions. We're getting together at tables. We're trying to do all this, you know, carousing or whatever to make sure we get through what we get through. Then when you're voted in as a world board member, there's a wall that goes up and you become a them. And I, that, that was something that I was, and I'm, I'm just, I, you know, I don't think I've ever brought this up before except in the hallways, but uh, it's a really interesting phenomenon <clears throat> is because uh, the, the RDs were inviting me out for coffee. The RDs weren't inviting me to lunch anymore, and it was immediate. <clears throat> and I became I became a dad. I didn't want to become a dad. I, I didn't 
go for I didn't put my hand in the ring to serve to become a them. Uh, and then you experience, uh, it seems the lower you get, uh, or the higher on the pyramid, wherever we go, <clears throat> the more you are, um, you're the focal attention. People need to blame somebody for something. So, uh, and sometimes it's the RD. I remember someone telling me when I was a regional delegate, you know, you've got to have pretty thick skin to do your job. And I thought, how unfortunate a statement is that? You shouldn't have to be thick-skinned to be a regional delegate. We should be celebrating our GSRs. We should be helping our GSRs, our committee chairs. Our, we should be contributing to try and help them do their job better. But that statement really rubbed me the wrong way. Thank you. Uh, is that my score? He just held up a 10. So now it was 10 minutes. Thought, wow, I must be doing great. <laughs> five minutes, I bet I'm going to go down to a five. <clears throat> so uh, at any rate, uh, I've done service at uh, all sorts of different uh, layers of narcotics models. Uh, and it has been a humbling, humbling experience. The people that I serve with, the other members of the board, are just the most wonderful caring, intelligent uh, people I have ever had the opportunity to serve with, besides Ross. And, uh, you know, it, it has been an amazing experience and to try to tell you about what it's like. I hope everyone in this room gets the opportunity to do the job uh, that I get to do. Because it's to see the fellowship, to see the global, to see not only the, glo the global representation, but the global impact of working with the World Health Organization of the United Nations or looking at getting into China and the different places and the different printing we have to set up, the explosion of the fellowship in Iran, uh, getting to you know, get the conventions in Barcelona, Brazil. <clears throat> it is, uh, it is, it's, it's amazing. I think one of my, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite moments on the board because we, we have to travel. Everybody wants uh, a board member to be there. There are events all over the world, and we would like a world board member there, we would like a world board member there. So we do have to travel quite a bit. And on one sunny afternoon in Victoria, I was driving uh, with my wife, and the phone rang. And uh, I picked it up because it wasn't illegal to talk on the phone now. <clears throat> and uh, it was the chair. And he said, what are you doing in uh, April? And once again, I made the mistake of saying, nothing. Uh, he said, great, we need you to go to the Middle East. And I said, what? what? <laughs> and my wife said, no. <laughs> and uh, I said, wow, this is, uh, this is something else. I've got to uh, do what I love doing. Uh, do what I really love doing is making a difference. And, and being on, and it's not just me making a difference, it's being on the team that makes a difference. Being there when changes happen. I flew into Cairo, uh, met up with the rest of the uh, SEAL Team 6, and we, uh, <clears throat> you know, it was a whole, uh, you get to see, like Narcotics Anonymous is everywhere. It's everywhere. Every different language, key fobs are the same color, readings are the same color. It's everywhere. And, you know, to sit in a meeting in Kuwait and uh, see someone get up uh, and you look around the room and everybody's wearing different different clothes. I, I thought it was in a movie. And someone gets up to get that orange key fob and he's crying his eyes out. And uh, he's going, I can't understand what he's saying, but you know exactly what he's saying. 
you know exactly what he said. You don't have to know what he's saying. You know how he feels. And, you know, it was moving. We got a call from uh, the Egyptian H&I, uh, person in charge of H&I, and uh, he had his card, he showed us his card. His card said, President of the Message Carrier Society of Narcotics Anonymous. We said, you yeah, know, you might want to change that. But uh, he said, would you, it was myself and the chair, and we're both big H&I guys, we love H&I, he said, would you come and share in a men's prison? It was a men, thank you, I'm almost done. <laughs> there was a men's prison on the Persian Gulf. And we uh, said, yeah, sure, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll have a translator for you, they're very excited, they love us in this prison. So Craig, who was the chair, and I, we got in this car, and we are driving through the streets, I don't know where it was, you just, you know, it's like a conveyor belt. You just get on it. It's been the best ride. We ended up um, arriving at this uh, massive uh, men's prison. The commandant or the general who ran it wanted to see us. So we went up with him. Uh, he had us up for tea and uh, had pictures taken with him. He wanted pictures taken with us before we left. He told us how much he loved Narcotics Anonymous there. We love Narcotics Anonymous. We give them this room. It's all their room. We're going to give them another room because it's so popular in the prison. He said, we read the Just for Today over the loudspeakers every morning for the entire prison. And when, you, when we got down to the room, it gives me goosebumps just talking about it now. When we got down to the room, there wasn't any room left on the wall or the ceiling. It was all covered with N.A. posters, N.A. memorabilia. There were speaker tapes in English that were scotch taped together because they'd been broken. Uh, I don't know whether they could understand them or not, but they would sit there and listen to them and, and look at the posters. And man, that experience of going in there, sharing, being part of the team, doing service, they gave us a replica of our symbol that they had made out of uh, toilet rolls and string and elastic bands. It was about this big. We thought, how the hell are we going to get this on the plane? Uh, but, and, and of course, the, the prisoner really wanted to take a closer look at it before we took it out. Uh, but uh, finally, finally, you know, we got it out. But the whole experience is, you know, this is a big, big fellowship. It's a massive fellowship. And I, I don't think that enough people understand how important it is, how important it is to, uh, I've gone down to a five, oh, damn. <clears throat> so how important it is to do what we do, how important it is for there to be an activities chair. How important it is for there to be a GSR. How important it is for there to be somebody making coffee, if there's coffee to me. Somebody to set up the chairs. Setting up the chairs was my first real service position. Because when I went into that first meeting, I saw these guys. I thought they had ADD, but they were setting up the chairs with the floor tiles. It had to be exactly one and a half to one and a half. I said, I want to be on that team. I want to be on team obsession. So. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. There's a feeling of pride. There's a feeling of uh, becoming part of the machinery because this is our program. It's a we program, and to be to truly uh, participate brings so much. Uh, I, I just can't tell you. And uh, I've been very fortunate, very blessed to be allowed to do what I do and to be allowed to come and speak today. Thank you, guys. Hopefully, you have another million years.